Hello, this is the AI and L&D Insights podcast, where learning, development, and performance support meets cutting-edge artificial intelligence. This is where we try and cut through the buzz, we explore innovations, we discuss their potential, and we unmask limitations. My name is Marcus Bernhard, and today we've got with us Adrian Thomas, an AI enthusiast, a digital creator, and an instructional designer. Welcome on the show, Adrian. Hi, Marcus. It's so nice to be here with you. Fantastic. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Previously on the podcast, we've talked about the intricacies of large language models. We've talked to Josh Cavalier, where we talked about a myriad of the kind of tools that are coming out and how they might help people. But I've really been looking forward to this conversation because Adrian is one of those designers and creators and enthusiasts who's really dove into these tools and is using them on a daily basis in, in regard to many aspects of the work that she's doing. But before we dive into the AI, maybe Adrian, tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. As you said in your introduction, I'm an instructional designer. Now, most everything I do comes out of I'm usually trying to use pictures to explain a complex uh, content that my participants need. And so out of that, I've tried to find different ways to um, instruct that. And AI has been a great help. Fabulous. Many people out there are just starting out on that journey. They haven't done as much playing around with these systems as maybe you or I have. And it would be great to hear, how did you start your journey in the world of AI tools? I think with AI, it started with Grammarly. But if I were to step back just a little bit further from that, I thought about, I want to be a great writer. How can I be a great writer? There has to be something out there that can help me formulate my words. And so I went to Grammarly. And then from there, I went to Quillbot. And I was able to write a few words of what I wanted to say, and it would pull them together succinctly. And I had a complete thought and it sounded good. And so when AI came along, it was like exactly what I needed. So it, it was perfect. And tell us a little bit about Grammarly and Quillbot. How do they work? What is it that you can do with them? So Grammarly for me has always been just reading my work or looking at grammar, looking at spelling, that type of thing. It was Quillbot that took my writing to the next level because in Quillbot, you can actually paraphrase. And in paraphrasing, you can ask, do I want my words to be formal? Do I want them to be simple? Can you shorten that for me? Most all of the things that you now see in that GPT were things that were already in Quillbot. And so I made the transition very easily. So for instance, if I use too many words, I see that brown cow over there. It may see, I see the brown cow. So it just made it simpler. 
And that is exactly the kind of thing that I will struggle with because I like far too much very long sentences, both in my writing as well as in my speaking. Have you transitioned? Is Quillbot still in your arsenal or has it become more chat GPT focused? How has that journey developed over time? So Quillbot is still my go-to because there aren't many places in chat GTP where you can just put in a sentence and say, tell me if this sentence is correct or rewrite this sentence for me. Generally, a prompt that you're putting in. So Quillbot is still the place I go when I want to paraphrase a statement. Um, it just makes it easier because with ChatGTP, you tend to have several uh, parameters. Right. So it's the user functionality that is just better on the Quillbot side of things. Exactly. Fantastic. And then over time, of course, you've looked into more and more of these tools. Which tools are you using these days? And were there any others maybe along the way that you had a look at but have moved away from? Of course, OpenAI um, is a great place to be. And they have an extension called AIPRM, which is a database of prompts that other people have created for all kinds of purposes. Everything from Facebook posts, Amazon descriptions, there's a one-click course creator, 45-minute speech, and it you, you literally, and forgive me for stuttering, but you literally put in a few words and it writes the entire uh, content out for you, and it's wonderful. So that's one. Um, but beyond that, I've used Gamma. Gamma is a presentation writer, a document writer. Then I use Pictory. Pictory is all about AI video. Animoto is another one where you take your ideas and you put it together and it creates a... um a video for you, but it's more like PowerPoint on steroids in that you get a format, but it's a moving format that is visually appealing. And then, of course, the words. I started out with um, Well-Fed Labs, which is fantastic, but extremely costly. So I moved to Eleven Labs. As far as my, my voiceovers, giving that crisp sound that actually sounds like a real person. And Canva has been there the entire time, but with their latest update and the magic release, it is super fantastic. Things that I might have gone to the Photoshop for before can go to Canva and it's, it's awesome. Things like, Maybe there's a photo and I really need to extend it. I really need it to be a little bit wider or a little bit longer. I can do that now in Canva and not have to go to um, Photoshop. So it's wonderful. Uh, okay. 
So if I'm on a photo with a friend and we've cut my head out because it happens to be a nice smile that we might want to use elsewhere, then you're saying we can expand the background and yes. seemingly I was there on my own. Yes, yes, uh, definitely. Oh, fantastic. I, I'll need to use that. That's well, a... Canva does all of that. It does expand. It will take a little something out. It also has that DPT um, integrated. And so it will morph different things. It'll create something that maybe wasn't there before. So let's say someone, you want someone to hold a rose and they're just sitting there with their hands crossed. Well, then they're holding a rose when you write it in there. It's just really neat. You can create so many things that weren't there before. And then the other thing that I love was probably... 10 years now, I've been working on avatars and avatars to make people smile. Um, I've had people who were frowning and I would, you know, go in and make them smile and show teeth. It was so funny. I've also done some things for my family reunion and it looked like most of the pictures of my relatives from the 20s and 30s, they were always so mad looking. And so I said, you know what? This person deserves a smile. And so I changed it and it looked so real. I mean, even the cheekbones and everything were in place exactly like you would expect. And my cousin saw this picture of her dad and said, give me that picture. I've never seen that picture of my dad before. <laughs> and I had to laugh because it didn't exist. But, you know, it, it made her feel good. So that was great. And I guess vi visuals especially are one of those things that in learning, because while we can do the text, while we can do the slides, getting exactly that kind of image that you need for something specific can be quite daunting. You might have a client who needs a very specific branding. Um, I think if I remember correctly, you told me a little story about blue polo shirts when we spoke recently. Can you share that maybe with the listeners? Sure, I can do that. So we had a client, and the client, their piece were blue, royal blue polo shirts. And as an instructional designer, I'm always trying to give a picture. You can put a picture in a learner's mind of what it is you want to teach. They understand it. It makes a connection on an emotional level. And so... I needed to do a safety class. And so that safety class needed to have an instructor. And so I used Midjourney. And in Midjourney, I had to be very, very specific and tell it I wanted a striking royal blue shirt. And I was able to create an entire safety class with all different types of poses, diverse people in the frames. All of that. It just came out perfect. Now, I will say there were a couple times I was trying to get them to smile or laugh and they got kind of, you know, out of hand a little <laughs> bit. So I had to rein them back in so that they would look like they were actually in a safety class. But great fun. So now when it comes to stock images, I don't necessarily have to go to those big names and pay that big money. But. I do have to be very, very specific about the context. 
that I'm trying to do together. So just like you speak things into existence and, and they happen. So especially for those people who are on the creative side. I often found myself looking through stock images. I had a rough idea of what I wanted. And then after about 10 images, I think, oh, that's the one. That's the one I probably was looking for. Exactly. But but I lack that creative gene completely, as I tend to say. (laughs) But if someone is designing something and they've got a very specific idea of what they want, right? I I need an instructor with a blue polo shirt and I need a team all wearing the same blue polo shirt and I need them to be diverse and smiling while they're in the class learning something that that's a very specific image that you're describing there and the fact that we can actually describe that image and then generate that image now and better and better I mean every four weeks it looks like these systems are making a huge leap forward that is just every day every day but I will say that the polo shirts in a class was the end product. The beginning, what I was given was just text. And the text didn't say in a class, but it was constructed. Um, the target audience was for managers. And so I needed to make that conversation that idea very crisp to them so the best way to do it is to have an instructor with a class who says what you're supposed to say and then has a a class of people responding to that and they actually see it and then they as the instructor can imagine themselves in that class giving that content but understand that that was the end product that was not what i what i received and so if someone says we want to demonstrate how to integrate a safety training inside your regular meeting and you'd start out by saying today we're going to talk about this safety issue that is the beginning of it, but you actually have to see the picture of being in the classroom and how do you explain this in a way that resonates with your audience. So I, I, I just wanted to be clear on that, that that yeah. was the end result, but never do people come to you and, and have that much depth of thought about how they want to communicate that idea. And I'm sure many digital creators and instructional designers can feel for you there because very often people come with almost no idea or or maybe they have a a very well-defined idea where the first thought Mm -hmm. of the professional team is, ooh, that's that's maybe not going to quite work the, the way it should. In how far will these tools improve the learning in how far can you already see that the impact is changing? Because I've spoken to AI specialists outside of learning, and they often say to me, okay, you can make the images a little bit more interesting. You can make the visuals more interesting. But at the end of the day, I'm going through an e-learning. It, they're getting much better. They're getting adaptive. We, we can do all those things. But how important are those aspects for learning? What are designers talking about in terms of 
the the impact on learning now that we can do more, especially with the visuals? That's a great question. What I've noticed is that with a language integration, you now have the ability to understand emotion better than we did before because your words give emotion. So I love that as opposed to, I don't want to see that. So your words, each word gives an emotion. Mm -hmm. And so what we find is because you had the NLP, the natural language processing, we can now synthesize the emotion from the word. And all of that to say, now we realize that if you want to have a learning experience and you want it to impact your learners, then it must be packaged in emotion. And it also has to be what we coined mm -hmm. edutainment. So education and entertainment mixed together. And then, of course, there's some storytelling there. And when you mix all of that together and the images actually portray what you said, you are now taking learning from a whole different arena from a classroom or on a page but people can actually visualize what you're saying outside of that. It's almost like where you can actually touch and feel it. So we can make it more meaningful. Yeah. We, we can make it less boring. Yes. We can put it more into the context of how it might be applied. And those images we conjure up in our mind while we're learning, those help the learning. And I also like... If I've understood you correctly, I also like how the ability to be more precise with text now to mm -hmm. conjure up certain emotions or in other scenarios, avoid them, right? If we're training medics or, or nurses on communication, then there are certain situations where em emotion needs to be taken out of the language and we need to be more factual. I think we have much more to play with there. And of course, the designer who is often left with the wording, who might not be an expert, can use natural language processing and large language models now to their advantage to formulate better, as well as add the images, right? Definitely. Definitely. And one of the things that I told you about Robot is that it would paraphrase for me and it would shorten sentences. The other thing that it did is it, is it had a creative mode and in that creative mode, it would add words. So maybe you're trying to explain something and you can use a creative mode, which is actually also in uh, OpenAI. And so it makes the language more picturesque. In other words, the words themselves begin to paint the picture. And it, it just takes it a whole different level. I was working with a prompt for a short story. And if you use a regular prompt or, or tone is informative or conversational, it comes off 
totally different than when you put it in the creative mode because now you've got all of the words of a great storyteller mm. that make it so interesting. And you, and you know the difference between someone who just reads a story and then someone who is a great storyteller and they have all those extra words, you know, give you that crisp understanding. And so, I mean, now that is a mode. That is a, um, a hot, warm, cold. You have a mode, you have a home that you can drive to. And that makes it so much more interesting. Right. And you mentioned storytelling there. Another big tool, of course, that comes up again and again is scenarios. So I guess we've also got far more creative now with large language models, maybe helping us draft certain scenarios, helping us come up with ideas for new scenarios, come up with ideas for twists and turns in those scenarios. I guess that will also make learning far more interesting and far more meaningful when we have access to such better scenario writing. Everyone in instructional design is not a scenario specialist, right? No, no, not at all. And so even with that, I've been able to create scenarios so I can take real pictures and then have characters that I've created through Midjourney and place them inside of a, a frame that is a real picture So it looks like something that could really happen. And so when you know that you visited this place and then you see these characters, it's like, oh my gosh, that could really happen. And if I don't tell people that those aren't real people, they don't know. So it just just makes it such a more rich experience. Yes, the the visuals have improved so drastically. And and like we said, every, every few weeks and sometimes... Day after day, we see such big improvements in the images becoming more and more realistic. I often compare it to the gaming world, computer games. We're almost making progress as we used to make in computer games every 10 years. That's the progress we're now making every three to four weeks. And when we started out, the first images would have maybe made us proud in a computer game in the late 80s or early 90s. And we would have gone, you know, that's we've seen better, but... But yeah, at least the system is getting there. Now you create an image of, you know, some some heroine standing there with the sun in the background, with the reflections off the armor, with the hair looking like there must be a little bit of a breeze in the air. But yet, you know, it all feels yeah. it overheals so real, and that progress is still continuing, and very soon will translate into moving images. Right? I'm, I'm guessing exactly. very often. For for me, the next stage that I'm expecting might be that just like those images on our mobile phones that move for half a Mississippi, mm-hmm. right? They're not, they're not still images. There's that tiny bit of movement before it becomes the photo. I'm imagining that might be the next step to have that little bit of movement in there. I think that could also be really interesting. It may be a little scary to imagine, but everything is moving to that virtual reality. And so this may sound kind of crazy, but you remember Star Trek when um, Spock used to do his mind meld? Yes. And in the Matrix, where they could just put in a new um, a new program, and you know how to fly a helicopter or uh, you know whatever it is, skydiving, whatever it is that you need, 
it's almost like it's going to get to that point where you can immediately tap into something. It's going to be instantaneous. This is something that I've been discussing with quite a few professionals, not quite in the sense of that you can download it into your brain, of course, but the, the instantaneous aspect, right? The, fa the fact that we're potentially not too far away from being able to have a training designed and delivered in situ that wasn't designed prior, at least not in full, maybe, maybe with some outlines, maybe with some general context, but potentially with AI filling in very specific gaps therein, in the moment of need for exactly that one learner or that workshop group that, that we're working with in the simulation, for example, I think many exciting things there still to come. Um, the one thing that I wanted to say is that yeah. no matter what we're using or how we're using it, there always has to be a human present. Because AI will only do what we tell it to, and it does not know all of the intricate details of the human experience to gauge whatever that picture is or that video or whatever it is that you're creating. You still have to be there to go through that. Computers and, and AI can actually hallucinate and create things that aren't actually there, and it looks like it's there. Yeah. I say it's like um, using GPS. If you're driving around your city and you know the quickest way to get somewhere and you use GPS, maybe just to see what the traffic's like, you'd still have to look at it because there could still be some shortcuts that it does not know. I think there will always have to be human experience there because computers aren't people. And they don't live lives. Yeah. You're speaking of a lot of the downfalls and limitations of current models there, of course. And I guess, I guess that was what I was trying to kind of get at when I said there has to be at least some kind of framework in place for AI then to maybe start filling in the one or other gap, right? We're, we're probably talking about the next 50, 60, 70 years here as, as if it were going to happen uh... in the next, in the next week or whatever. But. I think by weeks now, it may be better than that. Yeah. But one of the, for me, one of the next steps would be that we've got a program done. It is, it, it can be delivered. It's got all the aspects in it that we thought it might need and it's ready to go and we deliver it to the learners and the first letting loose of, of AI a little bit on its own, I can imagine will be within such a program. When there is suddenly a, a question about a very special case that we didn't cover initially, and hopefully at that point in time, we we're, we're pretty sure that the knowledge engine is good enough that we won't get hallucinations and we will get some answers. But those are the scenarios around the edges where I think we can't design a training perfectly for everything. And so the first use of letting AI go a little bit independent will be around those edge cases and interesting questions that people might pose. But instead of giving the learner an error message and saying, sorry, we can't do that, I, I can foresee maybe AI playing, playing a little role there as well. But we've talked a lot about the different tools and what they do, and we've talked about the quality and of, of the work for the learner or, or for the client. 
What is it in terms of productivity and time where you see the biggest gains in your work? Where, where are the biggest productivity and time gains? So from an instructional designer's point of view, you referenced earlier that you're looking for a stock image and you spend 10 minutes looking for the stock image. Yeah. Um, 10 minutes is, is probably conservative when you're looking for an image and you tend to pay more for sites that will give it to you faster, give you the images that you could possibly be talking about faster. Mm -hmm. So when you're working with MidJourney, for instance, once you have your prompt, and it's a very, very precise prompt, then you use that over and over and over again. It's almost like, I call it a recipe. When you're cooking, if you know how to bake a cake, once you know it, you bake the cake over and over and over again. And some people, you know, don't use the recipe anymore. And some people may have the recipe right there just in case they miss something or they want, you know, to have some exactness. but it still works. And so when we go to a place where we're now sharing our prompts, that means that if you're looking for something, you can get it quickly. So for instance, I'm doing some coloring books. And in my coloring book, I have been able to purchase prompts. And in purchasing those prompts, then I can create, I see what they created, but now I can take it to the next level. I can create what I want out of that prompt. And so, again, it makes everything you're doing so much better. So if I want if I want a training class, then this is the prompt that I need to use. And if I want the shirts to be blue, then this is the wording that I need to use. And as we all learn that and share what we learn, you go from something taking 10 to 15 minutes to taking one or two minutes once I know where to go and I use the tools. So and even in writing training, if you have a method of saying, I want to do a training about safety, and then you drop it into prompt, and then it creates the entire training for you, and then you go back in and you say, I don't want to be that specific or I want to have additional information here. Then when you go to, to collect the data, because you still have to create, collect the data to get the training completed, you're already operating from a framework and you're just filling in the gap, tweaking and you're filling in the gaps as opposed to starting from scratch. I mean, do you think you could storyboard? You could you could sketch from an outline as opposed to a blank page? It just makes it so much easier and faster. And then the quality of it is so much richer because mm -hmm. you didn't spend all your time brainstorming. Amazing. This has been a, a really interesting journey through the quality, the productivity, the tools you're using on a daily basis. For someone just starting out, 
This can be a little bit daunting, right? You mentioned the new Canva release, and I'm thinking, yeah, there's probably at least five really good functions in there that I would like to yeah. try. And I might find a video somewhere where someone has shared their experience with how to use it. So it can be a little bit daunting when I'm thinking about, do I start with Quillbot? Do I start with Gamma? Do I start with uh, Canva? We're obviously going to put all of these links in the show notes as well. For someone just starting out, Adrian, where would you give someone who hasn't done a lot yet, who's maybe just prompted ChatGPT a few times, but who hasn't really gone into these tools, what, what would be the steps that you would recommend for someone who's just starting out on this journey? So I take it all the way back to someone who hears about AI and, and says to themselves, oh, that's for me, that's too complicated. You have to be open for possibilities. You have to be open for what if. And then you need to see the cool work. And so I suggest people start off with PI, which is PI. Um, you can do that on Apple um, phones. And then it is Hey Pi for Android phones. And also on the internet. And these tools will help you have a collaborative conversation. Now, I will say that it is probably the most helpful, um, syrupy, sappy, helpful. How are you doing? How is your day? Things that you would not want to be discussing with a computer program. But it's supposed to make you comfortable. And then um, as you get an idea of the vast amount of information that you can get very easily, it gets you more comfortable working with the tools. And then from there, I would probably say perplexity. And now, one of the reasons that I do this is because they're free and they're very accessible. And so a lot of things with AI cost money. So if you can practice with free, mm -hmm. then you get better and better and better and more comfortable. And then from there, you can do more and more. So I think that's great. Go to a growth mindset. And then the next thing is when you start out a project, you don't start the project. You just do the task. You start the project and you assume you have help. And so you have to plan it differently. So for instance, if you were going to go cut the grass, an AI or some type of AI device was going to help you, you couldn't just go to the machine and start working. You would say, I wanted to cut just the front yard. And looking at my yard, I see that I have much more growth on this side than the other side. So now I'm, I'm planning that out and maybe I have this automatic lawnmower, but you've got to program it first. And so when you go in, you're not just going to do a task, planning a project. I actually turned prompting into cooking with a recipe. You want to plan with the end in mind. You want to be very, very specific in what you share. Is it a cake? 
if it's a cake, then the next question is, what's the context? Is this going to be a chocolate cake or a red velvet cake? And then are there some special ingredients that have to go in there? There's some details in it that maybe I didn't have, you know, maybe we're going to use sour cream instead of milk. And then once you you get to the end, you need to tweak it. You need to see, is this what I really thought it would be? Or do I have to go back and make some changes? So anybody who's ever baked a cake and it didn't quite come out right, then you might have to go back and tweak it. Next time, you know what? I'm going to use just a little more of this. Or next time, I'm going to try this. So that's the same consistency as, as creating prompts. It's just the spices that you put in make it come out differently. Yes, what I really like about your description there is taking first steps in becoming comfortable with the AI, trying things like pie and hey pie and perplexity and just playing around a little bit and seeing what the interaction feels like, what is happening, mm -hmm. what one is mm -hmm. doing. Clearly, the, the first step cannot be open up canvas and and try to do a 45 minute talk with slides from a text prompt that that can't be the starting point so i really like your first step as getting accustomed to the systems trying pi hey pi and perplexity is a nice way to start we'll also have those in the show notes and then slowly getting there and then the second part i really like is how you're describing this as a journey many mm. who haven't tried these tools for them, it's still a little bit of magic. You're, you're just going to tell it what you want, and then you suddenly have it. This recalibration process, this, oh, it produced what I said, but now I realize that I said it wrong. I need to, exactly. I need to reword it a little bit. I need to exactly. tweak my recipe, mm -hmm. right? I've, I've just been told someone can't have nuts. Okay, exactly. let's go back to the drawing board. Exactly. Um, I can see that. And obviously you have experience with this because I'm aware you also do training classes for AI yourself. Yes, I do uh, training classes. Um, my group name is Digital Wisdom and it is digital wisdom as far as understanding AI. And then how do you um, end up being successful um, online and safe? How can you do it and be safe? Those are the two things that, that we talk about. But the first part, um, I have a course that I've designed that's coming out um, this fall. And the course is all about getting the right mindset first, believing that it is actually possible to do these things. I want to reach those people who would never touch it or feel it at one point. We talked about the digital divide um, during COVID, and that's still real. So yeah. how do you get people um, to use it? But then go the next step. How do we help them use it in a way that is the right way? Because there are a lot of wrong ways to use this. For instance, it has the capacity to take a subject and look at all of the different points of view, not just your point of view, but all the different points of view, because it's getting its information from the internet. And if the, the topic has been covered from many, many different angles, you can have all of that information right there at your fingertips. And so 
I'm training people on how to use that. And then the next step is how do I put that in my workflow? Let's say you come up with a thousand prompts. Where are you going to store them? You have to have a storage system for them. You have to have, I mean, there's just so many things that you have to have to do this properly because the prompt is only good if I store it in a place that I can go back to it again and use it again. That is a wonderful, wonderful thought process to also end the podcast on. I really like how you're approaching this also from the angle, not just of the other digital creators, not just the other instructional designers who are now looking at this from a job angle. You mentioned there, and I fully agree that we, we have to look wider. We have to be inclusive. We have to give people access to these tools. And to some degree, it reminds me of helping maybe parents or grandparents with different stages of mobile phones or different stages of the internet and internet banking. This is becoming mainstream and we have to ensure access and we have to ensure that there's a certain equality and fairness within that access and that people can not just play with it, but utilize these tools, see how they work, find those that are free so that even financial means are no longer holding them back in their journey of at least experimenting with them, doing so without having to sign up and put a credit card down. And I can only thank you very much, Adrian. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. And your journey is really interesting. I love, I can feel your passion about these tools and how you're using them on a day-to-day basis and experiencing how they're getting better even on a daily basis. So I I hope this has been really good for our listeners as well to dive in and get an idea of maybe where to start or where the next step could be, depending on where they are in their journey. We'll have, of course, your links and where we can find you also in the show notes. So thank you very much. And thank you. We'll speak again soon. I look forward to it.